avoiding STIs in pregnancy, no matter what you're into, make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And... Invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you hello there 
Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics deep in the mission where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for <laughs> is in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. Okay, okay, yeah, it's Tuesday, it's 6 o'clock, um, uh, you know, little mic problems there, you know, what can you do, I plugged it into the wrong place, uh, sorry about that, yeah, it's Bughouse Square, uh, Time away to 
good warm place Yeah, then a cop come along And we give him a little
drinking arsenic in our wells each day. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Industry uses water up a river, trickle left when it comes through town. So much careless building and cutting, healthy rivers, greatly clogged and brown. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water, clean water safe for all. Little girl don't read so well, there's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish I'm Power plants poisoning you and me. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. 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 And uh, good morning, mutineers. This is The B, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, and mutinyradio.fm on the web. The name of the show is Labor and Love Radio, and are we happy to be here with you? Hope you're as happy as we are to be here. Hope you had a good week and good work. Hope your next week is even better. This is the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Maybe a hundred people worked for a cent they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never, let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And we started you out today with three different versions of the same song. We had a little piece of uh, Woody Guthrie, the author of the song. Uh, and then we had Bruce Springsteen with his version and uh, my personal favorite my personal favorite Ry Cooter the Vigilante Man 
After all, we have this mighty surge, these mighty movements, people all over the country getting together, both in specific spots and in bigger, bigger groups. So what keeps justice flowing from flowing like water, as Martin Luther King, the, the second song we played, Justice Flowing Down Like Water, mentioning one of King's speeches where he said, justice will flow down like a mighty tide. But the people who were singing that, the, uh, the Fruit of Labor group, that's a, a performance and a labor group in North Carolina. Justice flowing down like water. And they also talk about the poison waters. For example, the poison waters in Flint, Michigan, <clears throat> where the uh, governor of Michigan and the local authorities changed the uh, water source from one that was filled with to one that was filled with lead from one that was much cleaner. And a whole generation of children got lead poisoning. Kick it down the road, huh? All right, this is Labor and Love Radio, and we have certain beliefs here. We have credos that we believe in. And from time to time, we like to review them. Our credos have to do with justice for everyone, especially for people who work. Pity the nation, says Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars whose sages are silenced and whose bigots haunt the airwaves, pity the nation. That raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture, pity the nation. That knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own, pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed pity the nation. Oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. Pity the nation. And you, you remember Robert Reich, huh? Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor under Clinton, uh, now a professor over at UC Berkeley and a tireless voice for economic justice. And he reminds you, keep this in mind as you go through your week. The richest 1% of people in this country own half of the stock market. And the richest 10% own 92% of it, almost all of it. So when you hear people bragging about the stock market and someone saying the Dow is up or the Dow is down, that's not you. 
They're talking about some other. They're talking about the 10% who inhabit the stock market. Thank you, Professor Reich, for opening our minds to that one. This is one from Utah Phillips. And if there's one thing in this, on this show that we emphasize, it's labor education. Phillips wrote, said, kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mines. And you've seen pictures of children. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organize. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Parenthetical expression here. Uh, the amount of child labor, the volume of child labor has gone way up in the pandemic. It's on the rise, whereas for a while it was gradually falling off, but it's on the rise. Anyway, Phillips continues. Child labor laws were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. You and me. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs, that's why I tell these stories, damn it, no root, no fruit. That's why we've got to push and push and push for the idea of labor education in the schools. If it wasn't for the labor movement, what percent of those kids would be working in factories or somewhere else or some dangerous place? Got a little poem about child labor, which... Let me write that down. To remind myself. Next, immigrants. Oh, this is the biggest trick that's played on us to blame immigrants for our shortcomings here. Immigrant people coming here to work. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Jesse Memmer. Without social security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. Vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals, BS is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they're poor is due to income inequality resource price inflation, and wage slavery. Please use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything recruit, refuse to increase your wages. <clears throat> so there. Uh, how about that one? 
You're not poor because somebody from Mexico has got a job or might get a job. You're poor because you're not getting paid enough. Hello? This is of all the tricks that are foisted on us. This is, this is one of the most egregious. War is one. The economy is another. Anti-immigrant propaganda is another. All right. Let's move on. So you're just not that in politics, huh? Well, your boss is, say, the Democratic Socialists of Los Angeles. Your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Time to get into politics. Hello? Let's see what else we got. We have Jesse Mimmer already. All these are credos. These are things that, uh, like Zen, Zen Buddhism, wake up, you know, wake up. <laughs> What's happening here? And uh, that one not. Okay. Had Lawrence Philip Getty's Pity the Nation. Okay, so today, of course, which I haven't mentioned, is Labor Day. This this is Labor Day weekend, and on Monday we celebrate the workers, people who who work for wages in this country, the workers. People who don't work for wages, who work like, who are gig, gig workers. Lot, lot and lot and lot of gig workers. I wanted to find a, uh, an article about gig workers. Uh, gig workers are people who are not salaried workers in the normal sense that we think of them. Uh, and the companies, the big companies that employ them, are able to claim that gig workers are not normal employees. That there are people who uh, only work for a while, okay? So in other words, if you're a gig worker, say you deliver food for a company like DoorDash, you, you deliver your food, but you're only paid for the time where you go get the food and when you drive to deliver it. They want to say that during that other time you're not employed, even though you're doing the work of the company. Okay, 
So this is this is pretty tricky. And of course, it's uh, a way, another way for employers to skimp on wages. It's like the arguments, uh, why are women paid something like 75% of what men get paid for similar jobs? And you will hear all kinds of people saying, oh, well, women don't need money. Men are head of off of the households, which is not true anymore, if it ever was. Uh, they, you know, men need the money because they're the head of the family. What's really true is that it's just another way for employers to keep wages low. You have to look through this stuff, see, and see what it is. Now here, let's listen up to Miles for a little bit, and I'm going to find that article. Okay, here's the article I was looking for. More Americans are taking jobs without employer benefits is another thing that companies claim uh, by claiming that their workers are just gig workers. Uh, they don't have to pay benefits. And these big companies spent $50 million at the last, the recent last election to keep that classification, in other words, not ha not having to classify them as workers. Let's read a little bit of this. This is on, on Vox. An astonishing one in three U.S. workers does gig work now. More people are turning to gig work than ever before, but since these jobs don't come with employer benefits, their proliferation could worsen inequality for hundreds of Amer or millions of Americans. The number of people employed in non-traditional ways in the U.S. rose to a record 51 million this year, an unprecedented 34% jump compared to 2020, according to new data from MBO Partners, a company that provides business solutions the independent workforce and has conducted a long-running study of the group. These types of workers, which include contract workers, people who are self-employed, temporary and on-call workers, and those who get short-term jobs through online apps or marketplaces, are now equivalent to a third of U.S. employment. Gig work shifts the risk from employee, employers to employees and can lead to financial volatility 
for those who do it. Most obviously, the work doesn't include many of the protections afforded by traditional employment. Parenthetical insert. <laughs> Is it work or not? Are they doing work? Of course they are. This kind of work doesn't include such protections as minimum wage, overtime, paid parental leave, and employer-subsidized health care. If people's gig work doesn't compensate enough to pay for those extra independently, it can put people at a severe economic disadvantage compared to regular employees. Independent work does have its perks. It offers workers the flexibility of being able to choose to some extent, to some extent, what, when, and where their work is. Big gig companies pass Prop 22 to wipe out AB5. AB5 made many contractors into employees and afforded them benefits. The companies got together to pass Prop 22, exempted many gig companies from having to consider their workers employees. In August, California's Superior Court invalidated Prop 22 and made it unenforceable, but gig companies say they are going to appeal. So, the question is, <laughs> are they working or not? Is it work? Of course it's work. How can anyone say it isn't? And of course they need to be covered. Okay. A lot of talk today. How about a little music? And I wanted to play the Internacional and we'll give a little talk about the Internacional. Here's a version by Billy Bragg. Stand up, all victims of the prayer. Nor walls 
together or we'll die alone in our world poisoned by exploitation those who will take
caffeinated just enough stretch and send a prayer up for your kids and family to be safe be strong and be healthy and one day that they be set free but right now you got a whole house of mouths to feed time is really running thin can you fit a breakfast in lucky if you see your kids deeper take this moment in door and on your way off you go another day gotta be on time today and update that resume because this recession is a test they're making cuts now they want more for less if you start to feel that extra stress just do your best and leave the rest our ancestors did it too somehow they all made it through something that we all must do keep hope alive keep hope alive you'll make it too and in case nobody told you on your job today, and in case they didn't tell you on your job today, Las Cafeteras would like to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To mothers who sacrifice to make ends meet. Thank you. To fathers who faithfully take care of their seeds. The food you harvest keeps us alive. Thank you. To teachers training their students to excel and survive. Thank you. From cooks, waiters, and bakers for our daily bread. To TAs, assistants, and those teaching special ed. Bus drivers getting us to work on time. For DJs, breakers, writers, and MCs who rhyme. Students with two jobs hitting those books at night. And the organizers bringing us together to fight. The little ones doing their chores and homework. And all those under and unemployed looking for work. Factory workers, migrants from distant lands. South Central farmers teaching us to work with the land. Construction workers building up the world with their hands. These days time passes faster than the quickest of sands. and sweatshops, street vendors on each block, spiritual leaders and sweats, hot heat cleanses like detox, those working against addiction, fighting against eviction, the culture workers, musicians and artists on a mission to transform our community with care and conviction, to single parents making miracles each week, and to our elders for the truth and the courage you speak, to ancestors whose hard work paved the way, and to everyone who's out there doing labor today, to my indigenous people and our creator too, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, so thank you. speech by a Philip Randolph celebrating Labor Day.
The first condition of being worthy of help from others is for an individual, race, or nation to do something for itself. I consider the fight for the black masses to be the greatest service that I can render to my people, and the fight alone is my complete compensation. My name is A. Philip Randolph. The A stands for Asa. I was born April 15, 1889, in Crescent City, Florida. I am the youngest of two sons, and both my mother and father were the descendants of slaves. I began my political career in the socialist politics of the 1920s Harlem Renaissance. I have long fought for equal opportunity for black workers and for economic progress for all workers through trade unions, regardless of race, color, nationality, sex, or political or religious beliefs. Not everyone agreed with the vision of racial progress through militant struggles for economic independence. In the tough stages of organizing the first march on Washington to integrate the country's defense industries in 1941, for instance, Arthur W. Mitchell, then a black representative of the U.S. Congress from Chicago, called me the most dangerous Negro in America. In 1925, I, along with Milton Webster and many other brothers and sisters across the United States, undaunted and unafraid, fired by the vision of better days of economic justice, organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in the sacred name of truth and righteousness against the Pullman Company's despotic company union known as the Employee Representation Plan, which is company organized, company owned, and company controlled. This was considered the first major effort to unionize the Pullman Company. In the eyes of some people, the effort to organize the Pullman Porters appeared to be too herculean, yet visionary. Down in Thomas's rushed forward to advise that it was impracticable, suicidal, folly, impossible. But our answer? We have organized. Yes, we have organized over 7,000 strong men in the Pullman service running on the road and made it possible for the Brotherhood to present the Porter's case. Despite the unlawful intimidation practiced by the company upon the Porter's to compel them, the Porter's, to act against their own interests, the Porter's are standing strong and in from meetings from coast to coast have resolutely signified their desire to push forward with their fight to secure labor rights, better working conditions, and manhood rights. Mm -hmm. Our goal is victory. We will win victory. The Pullman Company may delay us, but they cannot defeat us. Ours will be a victory for solidarity, a victory for truth, a victory for justice, a victory for courage, a victory for manhood, a victory for righteousness, a victory for the race. If white men have to organize 
to get more wages, then surely race men will have to organize to get more wages and better working conditions. Out of the miserable depths of indescribable economic wage pauperism, the Brotherhood of Pullman Porters, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters is steadily raising the Pullman Porters and maids to a high plane of challenging and commanding power. The Brotherhood came with a definite industrial plan to provide supper and solace to the distracted, disheartened, disorganized, and despairing court. We struggled with the company for 12 long years. The Pullman Company was the most powerful business organization in the country and it viciously resisted every effort to unionize. We had many setbacks, but the Brotherhood prevailed. The Brotherhood's courageous battles won the admiration of many labor and liberal leaders. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal guaranteed workers the right to organize and required corporations to negotiate with unions. In 1935, the Pullman Company was forced to sit down with the Brotherhood. We moved to secure formal affiliation with the AFL and was finally granted an international charter. In 1937, the Brotherhood, which remained in the AFL, finally was given a contract from the Pullman Company, the first contract between a company and a black union. was the end of one struggle and the beginning of many others. From organizing for jobs on the home front during World War II, to the fight for desegregation of the armed forces, the defense industries, and government jobs, to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, where I stood along with some of the other organizers of the March on Washington, Byron Rustin, Roy Wilkins, James Farmer, Whitney Young, John Lewis, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and declared, fellow Americans, we are gathered here today in a large demonstration of the history of this nation. Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advance guard of a massive more for jobs and freedom. I thank you.
There we go. That set had two versions of the Internacional. <clears throat> Started out with Billy Bragg's version. And uh, Militant Marching. And then we had Annie DeFranco with her version. A little, little bit more syncopation. Internacional. Las Cafeteras celebrating the work that their parents did and that workers do day in, day out. We'll talk in a little bit about some of those struggles that are going on right now. And a speech, a Labor Day speech by one A. Philip Randolph, who organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and was able to get a contract from the Pullman Company, which was one of the most reactionary uh, companies. An amazing thing when that happens. So this is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love. We still got a lot coming up. We're at the 11 o'clock hour. Take a little break and we'll be back on the other side.
little cut from uh, Miles Davis, our featured album. This week is called Kind of Blue, classic Miles Davis album. With, uh, oh, it's Ed Coltrane on that. Kind of Blue, Wynton Kelly, Bill Evans, John Coltrane, yes he did. One of the uh, defining jazz albums of the, uh, this one says of the century, I suppose that if you're a jazz fan you would know that. I just love that. Kind of laid back. You wouldn't consider laid back to be so militant uh, in a way. But Miles is. Miles Davis is very laid back, but very profound. All right, let's get on to some of our news. Our. Um, labor beat stuff and I want to get talk a little bit about um, I wanted to find Marvin Miller okay um, in case you haven't realized it I'm a baseball fan had an amazing game last night. Amazing because it was so strange. But I, I don't want to get into that. I know it's kind of a private thing. I do want to talk about Marvin Miller. Now, who's Marvin Miller? If you're a baseball fan, you might know who Marvin Miller is. He was not a ball player. Uh, he grew up in Brooklyn and a time when the Dodgers were still in Brooklyn, rooted for the Dodgers. Um, worked during World War II on a war wages, the War Wages Board. Uh, became uh, an attorney, one of the lead attorneys for the International Steelworkers Union. And in 1966, he was invited by some ball players. The names aren't familiar to you, but uh, Robin Roberts, Jim Bunning, who later became a, a senator, a right-wing senator. Uh, players who were concerned about what was going to happen to them after they retired. A ball player average duration is not very long. I mean, the window where you can make some money and play is not long. I mean, the people we always hear about are stars, but the great majority of ball players are second stringers, subs, uh, short term, in other words. And uh, at the time, 1966, ball players were held in virtual slavery in terms of their labor. Uh, 
by what was called the reserve clause. It was a clause that was in every player's contract that said that the player's labor, baseball, baseball playing, was reserved by the team for one year. So every year when you played, you know, another year was added on. So the team could trade you. Uh, they could pay you whatever they wanted, basically. And um, the team negotiators were just real masters at tricking the players or browbeating the players or reminding them that how lucky they were to uh, be playing. And uh, nope, the players didn't have agents or anything like that. That would hurt your owner's feeling if you came in there with an agent. However, Miller decided to change all that with the help of the ball players themselves. So he went around to all the different teams, faced a lot of hostility from old line ball players. One general manager, a man named Paul Richards, said that if there was a union, it would be the end of baseball as we know it. Imagine that, if the ballplayers make some money. <laughs> At any rate, Miller was able to organize the players, and immediately what he did was he started charging fair wages or fair amounts for baseball cards. The baseball card people would pay a player maybe 50 bucks to use his image on a baseball card and then sell them all over the country for lots of money. And uh, Miller immediately regularized that, that he started getting the players more money right off the bat, so to speak. And as time went on, he led them through a series of actual out-and-out strikes. The biggest problem in the beginning was the low self-esteem of the players, Miller said. They had been so beaten down that they really didn't understand their value of the game. When he came in, the minimum salary was $7,500. Four years later, it was $10,000. Miller helped Kurt Flood during his Supreme Court case against the Reserve Clause. And he was able to win a, an arbitration board so that where there were disputes over salaries between what the player wanted and what the team wanted to pay that player, uh, it would go to arbitration. They would have one pro, pro owner member, one pro player member, and one who was supposed to be uh, balanced, supposed to be neutral. Uh, by 1976, the average major league player was making 50000 per year. When Miller retired in 1982, the average salary was 241000 Today, it's in the seven dollars $800,000 range. He inclu included steering the union through work stoppages. Okay, there were 
strikes. And of course, the fans, the owners reached out to the fans, <laughs> said, look, you know, the players don't want to play. We want them to play for cheap, and they won't play for cheap, and we want them to be our slaves. At any rate, now players have the right after six six years with the same team to change teams if they wish to offer their services. Robin Roberts, one of the original players who hired Miller, said, I don't know of anyone who changed the game more than Marvin Miller. His legacy is that through his work, ball players for the first time attained dignity from owners. In 2019, Marvin Miller was elected to the Hall of Fame after a long series of uh, campaigns by people to get him named the owner. The committee that was uh, voting for members of the Hall of Fame was biased toward the owners for many years. But uh, he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 2020. Showing us, of course, that baseball is a lot more than just a game in its capitalist manifestation. Okay, so Marvin Miller. <sighs> baseball Hall of Fame. Let's talk a little bit about the Nabisco strike. This is action that's happening right now. Nationwide Nabisco strike intensifies. Um, the strike that belong, began August 10th at the Portland Nabisco Bakery is turning into a closely watched nationwide struggle against corporate greed, joining Portland and other members of the bakery, confectionery, tobacco, and grain millers, BCTGM shutdown, Nabisco Bakeries in Richmond, Virginia on August 16th and in Chicago on August 19th, as well as distribution centers near Denver and Atlanta, all told about a thousand BCTGM members are on strike. Nabisco has two demands that are particular and galling. Sorry about that. Had a phone call come through there. At any rate, Nabisco strike. Nabisco wants to divide union members by making new hires pay more for health insurance. 
and after more than a year of extreme overtime and non-stop weekend work, Nemisco proposes to eliminate the hard-won pay premiums that compensate workers when they make those sacrifices. If, as the bumper sticker says, the labor movement is the homes that brought you the weekend, then Mondelez, Nabisco is staking out a position as the folks who want to take the weekend away. Gab supplied by the strike-breaking specialist Huffmaster start arriving by bus at the Portland plant. So far, they're showing up in relatively small numbers, and strikers think the plant is not producing much yet. And on August 31st, the company cut off health insurance benefits for strikers and their families. Roughly 200 members of BCTGM Local 364 in Portland are now in their fourth week of the raise, and only two are said to have crossed picket line. Only two. On the 24-7 picket line, spirits seem to be holding up so far and have been buoyed by an extraordinary and unrelenting outpouring of solidarity. Okay, so this is in mylaborpress.org and Um, so consult that. The 2021 labor strike, Bisco strike, is an ongoing labor strike involving workers for the American snack manufacturer Nabisco. And on and on. So let's keep... Let's see... This is an ad paid for by the company. Our goal is to provide bargain in good faith with union leadership. So they want to take away weekends. Huh? Truth about health care benefits. No changes for current employees. Modest sharing for future new hires. There it is. They want to. They want. They want to take away. You know. Some of those things. They want to take away free, medical care. For new hires, and there are several others. You might, you might check it out if you want, and check out the. Uh, check out the. Uh, the company statement too. See how they twist it and turn it, and then think about what'll be the bo the bottom line for adults who are working there. The bottom line for those people who work there day in and day out. Let's listen to this one. This is called Casas de Carton. Cardboard houses.
los techos de cartón. Qué triste. Pardon me. People, this is about workers who live in cardboard houses. Casas de cartón. Usted no lo va a creer, pero hay escuela 
Okay, that was Mark, Mark Antonio Solis with uh, Casas de Carton. And um, let's do a translation of that, huh? Casas de Carton, of course, uh, referring to cardboard houses or tents or... How sad the rain is heard on the cardboard roofs. How sadly my people live in the cardboard houses in Las Casas de Carton. Worker comes descending, dragging his footsteps from the weight of suffering. Look how much he's suffering and how the suffering weighs. He leaves the pregnant woman above, the city is below. And he loses himself in the tangle. Today's the same as yesterday. It's a world without tomorrow. How sad the rain is heard on the cardboard roofs. How sadly my people live in Las Casas de Carton. Children the color of my land with the same scars. Millionaires of worms and therefore how sadly the children live in cardboard houses. You're not going to believe, but there are schools for dogs and they give them education so they don't bite the newsboys. But the boss for years, for many years, has been biting the worker. Oh, sad. The rain is heard on the cardboard roofs. How far away passes a hope in the cardboard houses. In Las Casas de Carton. Version by Los Bukis, that one that we just played by Marc Antonio Sanchez. Um, well, we're about to turn up the last half hour. Actually, only 20 minutes. Labor history in two. Here we go. Reconstruction crumbles in Mississippi. 
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1875. That was the day anti-black violence erupted into a two-day massacre in Clinton, Mississippi. As many as 2,500 black Republicans and their families met at Moss Hill, a former plantation destroyed during the Civil War. The day was one of festivities and political speeches ahead of the fall elections. The county Republican Party invited local Democrats to debate. The Democratic state senatorial candidate did address the crowd. The editor of a local Republican newspaper and union officer, Captain H.T. Fisher, followed him. Soon a group of white Democrats began to heckle Fisher as he spoke. Republican politicians attempted to quell the growing tensions. Almost immediately, however, the heckling whites opened fire on the crowd. Women and children fled in all directions as black Republican forces rushed to defend themselves and their families. By the end of the day, three whites and five blacks were killed. Clinton's mayor fed off rumors of black retaliation. He called upon white paramilitary forces, the white liners, from surrounding areas for assistance. Several hundred answered the call and filled the town's streets. Historian Melissa Janzuski-Jones notes that though heavily armed, the white liners accompanied white locals as they rampaged door to door looking for black Republicans to murder. After two days, as many as 50 black Clintonians were killed by white Democrats looking to end Reconstruction and regain political control of Mississippi. A Senate committee would later conclude, quote, the riots at Clinton were part of a special purpose on the part of the Democrats to break up the meetings of Republicans and inaugurate an era of terror not only in those communities, but throughout the state. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1932. That was the day the Progressive Miners of America wrapped up their founding convention in Gillespie, Illinois. Fed up with concessions and what they viewed as heavy-handed anti-democratic rule by United Mine Worker President John L. Lewis, Illinois miners met to break decisively. Area miners were active in radical politics, and many supported currents within the socialist and communist movements. That July, Lewis opened the contract and agreed to a 20% pay cut. Tens of thousands of miners were furious and threw up picket lines at mines throughout central and southern Illinois. In Franklin County, striking miners were assaulted, shot, and beaten by special deputies and strike-breaking thugs. Many miners thought Lewis had had a hand in the violence against them. Two miners were killed and hundreds more injured. By September 1st, 273 delegates representing 40,000 miners resolved to break from the UMWA, form a new union, and plan immediate negotiations with coal operators. They drafted a constitution emphasizing rank-and-file industrial democracy. A women's auxiliary was established with Agnes Bernas Wick as its head. It imbued union solidarity and leadership qualities among non-mining women. An enraged Lewis charged dual unionism, but the new PMA alleged they represented 90% of Illinois miners. The split gave rise to the Illinois Mine Wars. Years of shootings, bombings, and assaults became almost commonplace as both unions struggled for power. The PMA soon faced internal fighting as conservatives attempted to wrest leadership from many of the founders. Though the union never dominated the industry, it continued to represent thousands of Illinois miners throughout the 20th century.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1910. That was the day the Protocol of Peace brought an end to the cloakmaker strike in New York City. The garment industry had been rocked by the uprising of 20,000 months earlier. Young women had struck hundreds of small shops over pay, recognition, and working conditions. They won ILGWU recognition in all but a handful of shops. 60,000 cloakmakers in the city were inspired to walk out of the sweatshops that July. The mostly male strike force demanded shorter hours and increased pay, the closed shop, and more. Union memberships soared and most of the small shops came. The larger manufacturers would not, however, and by the end of the summer, the protocol of peace was negotiated. Future Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis figured prominently in the negotiations. The protocol established higher wages, shorter hours, and overtime pay. It also guaranteed the union shop, elimination of contracting, and monitoring of piecework rates. Even more significant, workers won a union health center, a board of sanitary control, a board of grievances, and a board of arbitration. For the first time, garment workers had access to health care, a way to eliminate sweatshop conditions, and a way to mediate and resolve shop floor complaints. The price to be paid, however, was that workers would give up their most powerful leveraging tool, the right to strike. The agreement was lauded as a step forward for industrial democracy. But soon, many workers complained that the protocol failed to answer a number of shop floor issues. Grievances piled up and workers were penalized when they attempted to strike to resolve their problems. The protocol would be scrapped for a return to militant strikes during the 1920s. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Climate change? In other words, can we have Amazon and the Amazon? What about if the boxes doubled as levies? Please! I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and in this episode, we're looking at the failures of profit-driven climate change solutions and why the cooking of our planet is becoming a recipe for socialism. Once again, we've broken global temperature records with July being the hottest month recorded since the invention of recording temperatures, which if you're a right winger, sounds like very biased framing. The libs never wanna talk about the Hadean age when the earth was molten lava, typical. It's so hot that Greenland is losing ice that wasn't supposed to melt until 2070. The Arctic is on fire, and I'm pretending I belong at random pool parties. Oh, who, who am I friends with? Oh, Derek. Or Michael. Matt. You're telling me there's no Matt here? So now seems like as good a time as every other moment prior till now to talk about climate change. The planet has already warmed by one degree Celsius since the time we started burning all these fossil fuels. And we're on track to warm by four degrees, possibly as soon as 2060. According to the most recent UN study, even two degrees of warming would mean millions more refugees, double the loss of food harvest, 10 centimeters of sea level rise, and an obliteration of all coral reefs. Which means we've got 12 years to have a shot at keeping the temperature to a 
still bad, but manageably terrifying one and a half degrees Celsius of warming. So yeah, banning plastic straws ain't gonna cut it, even though it's fun to watch so-called liberal paper straws trigger our president into doing this. His campaign started selling Trump-themed uh, plastic straws, <laughs> so you could buy a pack of 10 for $15. $15 for 10 straws? That's a dollar fifty per straw. If that's how much Trump thinks straws cost, how much is his dealer charging him for Adderall? Yeah, that'll be uh, seven hundred thousand dollars. Part of the reason we're at such a breaking point is thanks to years of shallow solutions. Solutions often devised by the same corporate interests that got us into this mess in the first place. One of those solutions is carbon cap and trade, which tries to get polluters to pollute less by limiting the amount of carbon any corporation can emit, but also by allowing them to purchase carbon limits from other companies who haven't used theirs up. Cap and trade has already been implemented in countries around the world and in a number of US states, but many say that it doesn't actually stop emissions. It just spreads them around and creates a speculative market for carbon. Like, imagine if you could buy and sell Weight Watchers points to keep eating pizza. Someone would be making money, but no one's losing weight. Plus, we'd see the rise of a frightening thin people mafia who control the whole racket. Just listen to one researcher who says cap and trade pushes us in the opposite direction of where we need to be going. We need to overcome our addiction to fossil fuels and the problem with cap and trade is, it, is that it stands in the way of doing that in, in many ways. It's, it's, it's a way of providing pollution rights to some of the worst polluters so that they can delay the kind of structural change that's necessary. He's right. That's not how you fight an addiction. If you want to get your brother off heroin, you don't split up his stash between your mom and dad like, let's all just do a little bit of heroin to keep Brad from doing a lot of bit of heroin. At this point, cap and trade isn't even a relevant solution anymore because it's too slow to be viable. California, the second largest carbon polluter in the nation, but first in my heart, reduced its emissions by almost 9% in three years, which is not bad. But do the math. It's not nearly enough if we've got only 12 years to get to zero. Silicon Valley is still going to be underwater, and then we'll have to deal with a whole bunch of flotation device startups, and that just seems exhausting. So cap and trade won't get us there. What about innovation? We'll just ask the science nerds to come up with something. I mean, other than the ones telling us to stop burning fossil fuels. Innovation has been the aim of private companies also looking to get rich off the climate crisis. Floating ideas like geoengineering, which includes one plan to spray reflective aerosols into the stratosphere to block the sun. Yeah. Aerosol. If only our climate change denying president knew that this whole time the answer has been hairspray. Turns out, though, that that scheme, like many others, has too many unforeseen side effects to be feasible. Things like stopping rain and totally vindicating chemtrail conspiracists. Even if wacky inventions or cap-and-trade worked, they're still too slow. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to subsidize the fossil fuel industry to the tune of $649 billion a year. So not only are they making the planet uninhabitable, they're getting a goddamn discount. These faux solutions have come and gone, all while climate change has been getting worse, which means now we need to do far more in way less time. The longer we wait, the more that the response challenges our economic system because we need to cut so much and so deeply. What does she mean that the response will challenge our economic system? Well, that's because our economic system is currently based on using up all of Earth's natural resources with no regard for the actual Earth all to turn a profit and create economic growth, or GDP. You remember GDP from our video on the economy, which you should totally watch. And while you're at it, subscribe.
GDP is that phantom number that many agree is useless, but is actually incredibly harmful when it comes to climate change. Since when was GDP a sensible measure of human welfare? And yet everything that governments want to do is to try to boost GDP. Now, people like the OECD or the World Bank who say, oh, we're not asking for a lot of growth, just 3% a year. That means doubling in 24 years. Yeah, we're bursting through all the environmental boundaries and screwing the planet already, you want to double it? We have to overthrow this system which is eating the planet with perpetual growth. I love how blown this host's mind is. Rarely do you see the precise moment that someone gets woke. You mean it's not about plastic straws? Slowing down economic growth has actually been the only thing that has drastically stopped greenhouse gas emissions. The only thing in the last 40 years that has measurably reduced global greenhouse gas emissions is reductions in economic growth. When the Eastern Bloc collapsed in the early 90s, that led to global emissions reductions. He's right. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, greenhouse gas emissions dropped by about 40%. Apparently, people not eating meat because of the high prices had a lot to do with it. It was nothing but veggie borscht for them. And to think now it's way less painful to avoid eating meat with things like the Impossible Whopper, which I will try as soon as I stop being afraid of it. How does it bleed? The evidence is there that unless we're willing to rethink capitalism, we might have to rethink life itself. Because we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. We've been obsessed with doing more to stop climate change, making even more money, when the answer is actually keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Doing less. Like Disney live-action reboots. Do less. Less extraction of oil, less production, fewer or no yachts for the DeVos family. Renewable energy, solar and wind can replace coal, gas and oil, but we still can't keep endlessly producing and consuming. Even a UN official back in 2015 said as much, and that got the attention of Fox News' Greg Gutfeld, who quoted her on his show. This is probably the most difficult task <laughs> to intentionally transform the economic development model for the first time in human history. And predictably, that was met with red baiting. Well, she's wrong. See Mao and the 50 million dead, or Stalin. Hell, look at Venezuela right now. It's a crap show without toilet paper. Yeah. Seriously, they don't have toilet paper in Venezuela. Oh, where we're going, Greg, you won't need toilet paper because the whole world will be one giant bidet. You can wash your face ass wherever you want. Beyond the red baiting, there's an honest question. If we slow down production, will there be jobs? Enter the Green New Deal, a plan introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and that other guy. The Green New Deal is a blueprint for a 10-year mobilization to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by taking major steps like moving to renewable energy and building public transportation, all with the labor of millions of newly created jobs. This is a call to reorganize and to make sure that we are fighting for a just economy, for a just society, a just environment, and a just future for the United States of America and the world. Mm, sorry, having an ASMR moment. And whenever there's a plan for massive public investment and putting people over profit, it scares the 1% and their mouthpieces a whole lot. They went looking for an issue that would justify a hostile takeover of the economy. Climate change seems scary, so they went with that. Oh my God. Tucker Carlson would rather human civilization die than live in a more equal country. Also, note what's going on just to his right. Yeah, those are updates on an abnormally large hurricane off the Gulf Coast. I love how there's an infiltrator at Fox fighting the machine from the inside, and it's the weather. 
It will be hard to rein in emissions and capitalism for that matter, but it is possible. We must try with your help, with your insistence, with your organizing, with your demands, with your voting, with your mobilizing a broader electorate than we have ever seen before in American history, we do not have to go down that path. It's too late to stop some climate chaos. We're living it. But are we going to die from the things we love, no matter how humiliating? Will we be the David Carradine of civilizations? Or are we going to get real about real solutions? There's time, but we can't do it by just pissing around at the margins of the problem. We've got to go straight to the heart of capitalism and overthrow it. In other words, wouldn't we rather be red than dead? Thanks so much for watching Newsbroke. Follow me at Franny Fio and follow AJ Plus and Newsbroke on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all of them. So there it is, how capitalism funds climate change, climate chaos. With Francesca Fiorentini. Let's listen for a bit of Michael Moore. It's time, really time to get out of here, but. You know, Nacional. This is the bee reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. The world is beautiful, man once said. Let's cleanse it of all injustice and oppression. La esclavitud de los hombres es la pena más grande del mundo. You have been not, you shall be.
Okay, everybody, have a good week and good work. And remember, one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. It's called capitalism. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. Let's watch full length movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and watch the movie at the same time. Yeah. L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, L W F L M O Y T. L W A F L M O Y T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. 5% yeah, right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. 
Oh. Uh, uh, let's watch full length. Oh, wait, let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, ya. See you next time. I was just leaving the theater. <laughs> 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior that drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. Around in and on the freeway and having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good to see you. I am a total fan. Can I see Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And... Invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor.
for those who have an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion and love with passion and our passion, who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution, who would rather die than fall in line to conform, who constantly challenge the norm, who greet each and every day as if just born, I say to you I know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact I know it best when I say to you, I love you. Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off, for 